We're going to jump back to 2 Corinthians today and continue there, but it's also good to have our missions team back with us, at least those that were able to come this morning. Um, a number of them are sick, interestingly enough. Now, Jimmy, I know I'm going to pick on you for a minute because I know I can. You, you got a little sick, right? Yeah. Was it still worth going? Yeah. Why? Okay, be able to serve and, and to be served. It's a little crazy, though, to think that it's worth getting sick for a trip. Right? You're a little nuts. This morning, we want to talk about being a little nuts for the gospel. Paul is going to talk about the results of reconciliation. Last week for Easter, we talked about reconciled and that God, through no work of our own, through nothing we deserve, He reconciled us to Himself. He paid the price, made it possible for us to turn to Him. And so because this relationship is right, then we can be reconciled to each other and this relationship can be right, right? That's what we talked about last week. Today, Paul is in in 2 Corinthians going to hit the same theme of reconciliation. But he's going to talk about, okay, why? What, What does that promote in us? What does that motivate us in us? I mean, I can say I'm reconciled to God. I have a great relationship with God. Oh, it's just so nice. Life is good. I am happy. And and what focus does that put all of reconciliation on? It's on me, right? What can I get out of this? And as we read Scripture, the the point of salvation isn't what we can get out of it. Now, now we do get eternal life. We get a relationship with God. I'm not discounting that. But the point isn't what we get out of it. The point is then, what can we do for God with that? What does that motivate for us to do? When, when you get a, an incredible gift or an incredible um, thing that you find out about, you can't help but tell others, right? You, you, you just can't help but, but, but spread the news. If you, if you had cancer and the doctor said, I have a new medication for you to try, and you try this medication and two weeks later you're completely cancer-free, do you just keep quiet about that? No, that, that would be a little nuts. No, you tell everyone you can and you come across someone else with cancer and you say, hey, I've got this medicine you've got to try and you find out it cures them. Then you even tell more people and there's this groundswell of telling people. But Paul here is going to say reconciliation is better than any of that and it should motivate something different in each of us. And so today is just a continuation of last week. Last week wasn't in 2 Corinthians, but today Paul is going to to talk about reconciliation, the outcome of it. He's also defending himself a little bit because people do think he's a little nuts. And and, and we've talked about what he went through and the shipwrecks and the stonings. I've got to say, after a couple stonings, I'm probably done. That's probably, oh, this is, this is the word of God in my life. I'm done. I need to go a different direction. But Paul kept going. And so we have to ask the question, what motivated the guy? Because he's a little out of his mind to keep going. So what actually motivated him? Why was he so committed to the gospel? Why did did he continue in the face of such opposition? And so we want to look at what motivated him to be radically committed to the gospel, to be an ambassador for the gospel, but then ask the question, how can I be like that? How can I be like Paul? How can I take his example and learn from that? And so today we want to look at four different ways that things that motivated Paul, things that motivate us. Now I know when we start talking about being an ambassador for Christ and sharing the gospel with others, 
I, I know that that's an area where sometimes we like, no, 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 don't talk about this. We're going to get another drive-by guilting on Sunday from Pastor Ron, but then we'll go have good Taco Bell, so it'll be okay. And, and you know, it's, it's a subject that's hard to talk about because we're uncomfortable sometimes sharing the gospel. We're afraid of stepping out, or we have our own system and way of doing things, and we don't want to be flexible. We don't want to, to change things because life is just in the box that we've created for it. Well, this morning, I hope God's Word challenges us a little bit to get out of our box. Not a drive-by guilting, but God's Word convicting. Because when it comes down to it, we have a choice. And if we look at the text today, it all comes down to a choice. Am I here to serve God or am I here to serve me? So as we talk this morning, think of that question. Am I here to serve God or am I here to serve me? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at 11 through 21 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 to 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardcover Bible somewhere under a chair right around you. You're welcome to take that out. Turn to the, the last quarter of it and you should find 2 Corinthians there. If you don't have one at home, please take that with you as our gift to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 to 21. A little bit of background before we read it as well. Remember, 2 Corinthians is a story of reconciliation between Paul and this church, Right? The, the church at Corinth has been quite horrible to Paul at times. They've been in sin. They've rejected his admonitions. And they've even rejected his, his first messenger. And so finally he sent a very difficult letter to them, canceled a visit. Um, and, and they responded to that finally. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago. They responded. And so Paul is writing 2 Corinthians as, as a, a, a story of reconciliation. It's, it's the last act in the movie where things are moving forward after some very difficult times. And so this text today, as Paul is talking about his work for the gospel and casting that vision for the church at Corinth, this is an incredible story of restoration. Because he's saying, even though things have been bad with us, even though you've been in sin, even though you've walked away from God because you're coming back to God now, God is is still going to use you. He still has a purpose for you. None of that has been destroyed. And so he's casting vision of what God could do in their life as we study this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through 21. We'll start with verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There's a period after that. So I just want to take that that first phrase there. And that's our first point. Let the fear of the Lord motivate you to share the gospel in a compelling way. It's probably not good that my point's longer than the verse we're basing it on, but we'll, we'll, we'll explain that. Let the fear of the Lord motivate you to share the gospel in a compelling way. Now, keep in mind that, that this is all one letter. So if you remember back a verse to verse 10, what we studied a couple weeks ago now, Paul had just said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so verse 11 just follows that. Paul says his first motivation is that he's going to be held accountable before God. He's going to stand in front of that Bema seat. And if you remember the pictures, it was the elevated platform that the judge would sit on. But he's going to stand before God and God's going to say, okay, this is what you did. This is what you didn't do. Held held accountable. So the very next verse, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. 
Now, knowing that God is going to hold you accountable, does that make you shake a little bit? It should. It should. We've got to be careful not to water down the fear of the Lord. I think in, in church in America, we usually have. Because what do we describe the fear of the Lord as usually? An awe of the Lord. That's not all of it. When we, when we describe the fear of the Lord as an awe of God and just stop there, now that's part of it. That's definitely like God is God Almighty. He is supreme. But when we stop there, we are intentionally trying to take away the motivating factor of the fear of the Lord. He is God Almighty. He despises sin. Sin is an affront to His character. And so to stand before Him, there is a healthy fear. A fear that motivates us to right behavior. Now, now we don't want to just follow God out of fear and, and worry about what He's going to do to us, but we should understand that we're held accountable. Not all fear is bad, right? If you're in an airplane, it is fear that keeps you from jumping out of that airplane without a parachute. Right? And that's where fear keeps you alive. And, and in the same way, fear of God keeps us on the right track. And Paul knows that. It's why the Holy Spirit has him bring it up. We're all going to be held accountable before God. And so he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And so he takes that fear and uses it to motivate him for how he shares with others. That word for persuade, you might use the word convince. And the idea is that Paul is going to present the case for the gospel in a way to try to change people's minds. We can get really weak on the gospel, right? We can wimp out. Oh, Jesus died to save you. Have a nice day. The gospel is the greatest message ever heard. It is what has saved us. It's what allows me to look forward to eternity. And Paul uses a strong word that says we persuade others. It's using truth to move the will. It's creating an argument. Like when we talked about abortion a few weeks back, we gave a whole number of of arguments or points that you can make intelligently to persuade someone. Not to yell them into a different point of view, but to persuade them. And Paul is saying, because of our fear of the Lord, which includes awe, but also includes accountability. He's going to hold us accountable. We persuade others. We want to do a good job. We want to present the gospel in a way that people will will realize this is truth. And so that means being up front and saying, we are separated from God. We walked away our sin and everybody knows they're a sinner and our sin separates us from a holy God. There's no way we can come back to God. And you can talk people through that. Most people I've talked to are like, yeah, how can we? We can never earn our way back to an infinite God. We can never be good enough. I keep blowing it. And so logically, if we understand the argument, there has to be some outside influence to reconcile us to God. And that's the cross. And you see what I'm doing? I'm trying to talk through the gospel with somebody. And when you're talking with someone, talk with them. Understand, listen. And let's share the gospel in a persuasive way. It's not just telling, it's convincing. And when I think of a couple things that we can do as as believers to make sure we're able to share the gospel, the first is we've got to know what we believe. 
We've got to know what we believe. Now, the, the, the other side of that pendulum is don't wait till you know everything to share the gospel. You'll never know everything. It's okay to say, I don't know. Let me check on that. But know what you believe. Do, are, are you able to share the gospel, the, the central points of the gospel in two minutes or less? You should be able to. Every believer in here should be able to. We're all sinners. We've walked away from God. Jesus died on the cross, took our place, took my sin and the penalty. He rose again the third day, defeating sin in the grave. And if I believe on Jesus Christ, I will be saved and spend eternity with him. That's the gospel, guys. Can we share that? That should be able to just roll off our tongue. Like if we had a product we were amazed with, we'd be able to talk about it. Like opening day today of baseball. I wasn't going to use that in the sermon at all, but I love baseball, right? Dodgers don't start till tomorrow. Angels, who knows? Um, do they start today or tomorrow? To, today? Tomorrow? Tomorrow. Okay, great. But see, that's something we're passionate about, so we talk about it, right? You've been reconciled to God when you didn't deserve it. You're a sinner. Good morning. Good news of the day. You're a sinner. We deserve hell. But Jesus stepped in. This is better, dare I say it, than the start of baseball season. We want to be passionate about it. We need to know what we believe. That means studying God's Word. That means listening to messages, using resources. That means if someone asks a question, going and and checking out the answer to the question. People are going to ask you questions. If you're engaging them in a persuasive way, they're going to come back with arguments you may not know what to do with. That is awesome. Then go research it. Find out. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to one of the pastors. And let's talk through it. They may say, well, well, how, how do you, how could Jesus have done that? He was just a man. And we need to be able to say, no, actually, he wasn't just a man. He was God. Fully God and fully man. And he was perfect. So we need to know what we believe. It takes a little bit of work, but it's worth it. Other ways to be persuasive, be convincing. We need to make sure our life matches our message. Make sure our life matches our message. Christianity just isn't about Sunday morning and saying the right things and doing the right things for these three hours. Our love for God is to affect every part of our lives. And if you're trying to reach someone for Christ, they are watching you. I guarantee it. They're watching how you live. They're watching the decisions you make. Do those decisions have integrity? Are you willing to fudge the truth to get your way? They're watching whether or not you're putting yourself first, whether you're self-centered. They're watching everything about us, whether we really love God, whether this really is something that's important. Make sure your life matches your message. Another way to be convincing, persuasive with the gospel is to use your story. Use your story. And what I mean by that is a, a great way to, that's an inroad to sharing the gospel with people is to say what Jesus means to you. What has Jesus done in your life? How has he saved you? And maybe it's the story of when you've come to Christ. Maybe it's a story of a difficult time that where, where Christ has helped you through it. What's your story? I have found that people are almost always willing to listen to your story. Even before, the, the, I mean, sometimes you start talking the gospel and they blank stare. But if you start talking about, hey, this is, this is what I went through and this is how Jesus saved me, people will still engage. So what is your story? I'm going to do something just really stretching for us this morning. 
I just want to ask a few people, what's your story? We don't have time for books this morning. Okay, so not long. In three or four sentences, what has Jesus done in your life? Just two or three people. I know this is off the cuff. I don't have plans. What's something Jesus done in your life? Anyone brave enough to try this morning? He made you into a new creature. The old has passed away. Good. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. I want to sit and hear the rest of the story. Do you, do you see what's happening? I want to hear the story. Okay, how did that happen? How did he go from where he was to where he, where he is now? And that's using our stories to persuade people. Does that make sense? Thank you. A couple of people for being willing to share. I wish we could do that all day. And, and maybe sometime we will. God is powerful in our lives. Use your story. Be excited and amazed at what God has done. If we're trying to, to persuade others, they've got to see that it means something to us and it's exciting to us. One other thing that out of this verse, therefore knowing the fear of God, we persuade, we persuade others. There's an element of accountability in the verse, especially when you go back and read verse 10. The idea is everyone stands before God. You and I are going to stand before God and he's going to, to review the opportunities we've had and whether we've taken those opportunities. He's also going to do that for every person we meet. That unbeliever that we're not sure if we want to share the gospel with is going to stand before God someday. Ooh, that changes perspective. And so we need to think about people differently. But we need to realize there's accountability. One of the great things I think that helps us um, share the gospel in a compelling way and and be motivated to do that is accountability with each other. When there's someone that, that we are trying to reach for the gospel, tell somebody else in the church. Have them start praying. I loved it. Community group this week. A couple of people in community groups said, okay, I have someone that, that doesn't know Christ that I want to share the gospel with. And we just prayed for them right there. And this week, no one's going to come to community group this week. This week, we're going to ask, how did that go? Did, did you, did you, were you able to share the gospel with them or would you, were you able to reach out to them? That's accountability, but it's how the body of Christ starts to come together with a culture that says, we, we love Jesus so much, we want others to know him. Let the fear of the Lord motivate you to share the gospel in a compelling way. It's where Paul starts in verse 11. Second point, as we, as we pick up the rest of verse 11 and go through verse 15, is sort of the, the corresponding point to this. Let Christ's amazing love challenge us to selflessly give of ourselves for the gospel. Let Christ's amazing love challenge us to selflessly give of ourselves for the gospel. Here's Paul's first two points that we think are contradictory to each other so many times. Be motivated by the fear of God. Be motivated by the love of God. Isn't that cool? Because they're both true. And so here he says, look at what God has done in your life. Look at what Christ has done in your life. Let's read the verses. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. 
For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Lots of verses there. I know lots of words, and we'll, we'll, we'll break it down in just a moment. But that center point there, the love of Christ compels us or controls us, is the key to this. Christ's love for us should challenge us to give ourselves for the gospel. A couple things going on there. In 11 and 12 and 13, Paul is answering some concerns about his ministry still and the motives for his ministry. Is this really about the love of Christ or is this about yourself? And so Paul is, is, is setting some things straight, but he's describing a heart that, that sees God's love as a motivation. So he says, but what we are is known to God. And he says, you, the, the idea there of known to God is that I am completely open with him. He knows every part of my, my ministry. He knows every part of who I am. I am transparent. I am genuine. And Paul is saying, hey, what you see is what you get. I'm up front, this is me. Because he then goes on to say, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And so those that were claiming, ah, his motives aren't right, or that's Paul, he's sort of a jerk. Paul's saying, you, you, you know. God knows who I am. You know who I am. There's nothing hidden. And he goes on in verse 12, 12 we are not commending ourselves to you again. And he's very concerned here about looking like he's just puffing himself up. Well, I'm just talking about myself and how great I am. He says, no, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. I want you to be proud in, in your church's founder and in, in who I am and my message so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And you see the first challenge there, or the, the first comparison Paul uses is he does ministry with a right heart instead of just with right outward appearances, things on the outside. See, people would boast in externals. They'd be all about how they looked, how much money they had, what kind of car they drove, how, how they came across to people. And Paul's saying it really doesn't matter. What matters is where the heart is. They boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. It's not about appearance. It's not about position. It's not about charisma or how great of a speaker you are. And that was one of the challenges on Paul. It's about where is your heart for ministry. That's how we evaluate someone in ministry. That's how we evaluate who goes into ministry at Village. Are they sold out for God? Do they love God beyond all else? And if that's their heart, we can work with the externals heart sold out for God. Motives have to match the actions. We, we saw this in the Old Testament. Remember David? And, and Samuel is, is picking a, a king and David's brothers all come. David was the little runt of the family and, and his brothers all come in and they're much better in appearance and better status. And, and do you remember what was said? First Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. If we're to be useful for the gospel, 
if we're to be motivated to be ambassadors for Christ, we've got to make sure our heart's right. We're doing this out of the right heart. That means going back to the Word, going back, making sure sin is confessed and taken care of, making sure we understand what God has done for us. Paul goes on in 13, interesting verse, lots of, of things written on this. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And what he's saying there, the first, the first one, he, he gives two different contrasts there, or two different um, possibilities or options. The first is, if I'm beside myself. And, and people have said, well, I, what does that really mean if you're beside yourselves? It means out of your mind. That's what the word literally means. If you're, and Paul's saying, if I'm out of my mind, it's for Christ. No, that still doesn't explain what it means, right? And, and he's saying, if I'm nuts in what I'm doing, if you think I'm nuts, realize I'm doing it for God. If you think it's nuts to take a week off work and instead of go on vacation, go to Mexico and get sick so some little kids can hear about Jesus, that's for God. That makes sense? What he's saying, and, and some have tried to say, well, he's really talking about the gift of tongues here, and if he's out of, my, out of his mind, he's, he's ju- that's between him and God. That's not the context here at all. The context is the gospel and, and doing crazy things to share the gospel. Not stupid things, but things that the world thinks are crazy. I think for me, the, the way to understand this is understand the same word. It's not used often, but it's used in Mark 3, when Jesus is teaching and his family comes to him, do you remember what his family says? You're nuts. <laughs> Stop it. They're telling Jesus this. In, in Mark 3.20, Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. That helps us understand what Paul is saying. Same word. And Paul's saying, Yeah, I'm out of my mind for Christ. I'm willing to do things the world thinks are, is nuts because the gospel is better. It's more important. I think of people who give everything they have to be missionaries and give up all their stuff and, and give up their life to go into ministry. It's crazy, but it's good. Dwight L. Moody was ministering a large Sunday school and church in Chicago. People would often call him Crazy Moody. That that was his nickname. In the eyes of the unsaved world, Moody was crazy to have given up a successful business career to become a Sunday school worker and evangelist. But time proved his decision to be a wise one. Today, we don't know the names of the people that laughed at him, but we know the name Dwight L. Moody. Because his craziness was saying, I'm going to be about what's eternal, not about making more money. Paul says, if we're beside ourselves, if we're out of our minds, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, if, if, if we are persuasive, if we are coming across as, as having it together, we're not even doing that for ourselves. We're doing that for you, he says. You see, in a nutshell, love God, love others, by the way. Our theme for the year. It's, it's all through Scripture. And Paul says, I love God, so I'm willing to be cra- do crazy things for him but I love others because it's about you. And then verse 14, he goes on. For the love of Christ controls us. If you have NIV, I think it says compels. And, and the idea is to constrain and push in a direction. 
and, and that's the only direction you can go because it, it, it means to set boundaries. I can remember playing golf with, with, with one of the members here uh, a few months ago, and one of the holes had a pathway down the hole, a, a, a walking path, a hiking trail. That's nuts. If you've seen me play golf, that's dangerous. And in this pathway, they built a fence all the way on both sides and a fenced roof. It was completely enclosed in fencing. And sure enough, my first shot, right, I bounced off the roof. And so it would have just killed someone walking by. No, I, but that fencing constrains the runners to go a certain direction. Does that make sense? And there, there's no other direction it can go. That's where they have to go. That's the word that's used here. The love of Christ controls or compels us. It's saying this is what keeps us on path. If we're not sure what to do tomorrow or the next day or, or with life, one of our questions should be, what does the love of Christ mean to me? What does that compel me to do? Love of Christ here probably means Christ's love for us. It can, be, it can be read either our love for Christ or Christ's love for us, but in the context as he goes on, it's, it's the amazing love of what Christ has done for us. That he was willing to die in my place for no reason. That he was willing to suffer and be beaten and tortured in my place for no reason. That's motivating. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he's, he, he's referring there that Jesus died in our place. He died in your place. He died in the place of everyone in this room. And so all died through him as our representative. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died. And took the wages so you and I don't have to. That is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. He died for all. It's an offer of salvation for all. And then in 15, Paul, Paul differentiates between dying for all and then those that accept the offer. And he died for all that those who live, those that actually accept him and believe in him, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And there's a lot of talk about the theology of, okay, in verse 14, does that mean everybody's saved? No, that's not what it's saying. But that the offer of salvation is for everybody. It's sort of like Easter breakfast last week. He's like, where's he going with this? There was enough food for everybody here, right? But only the people that came ate. Sort of sort of an obvious illustration, right? Salvation's the same way. Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for everybody. It's an offer of salvation for everybody. But only those that believe on his name are saved. And Paul's expressing that here. But look at where he goes with it in 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And Paul is saying, if you know Christ, if you've accepted him as your Savior, you're dead to yourself now. It's not about yourself. It's about Christ. It's about what can I do to serve Christ, to live for Christ. The results of his death are that I live for him. I like to think of this as a life debt. You know, we've seen movies where someone saves someone else's life and then for the rest of the movie they follow them around. Say, I've got to serve you. I, I need. Why is that? 
because it's, it's a life debt. He saved his life. Christ saved our life. And so we live for him. When it says to live, no longer live for yourselves, to live for God, the, the idea is to live for the advantage of. I no longer live for the advantage of me. I live for the advantage of God. Now, when it comes to sharing the gospel, I actually think our biggest hang-up is self. If we had to define all of our hang-ups about sharing the gospel, it's self. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to go out of my way. I'm worried about what they'll think. I might be embarrassed. All that's self, guys. And so Paul says, Jesus died to kill self. It's not about living for selves. It's about living for Christ who was raised. In Philippians 2, 19-21, Paul talks about this constant battle with self. He's talking about people helping him. And he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a sad description of the others. But before we start judging... I would say that this is a constant battle for every one of us. Am I going to live for self today or am I going to live for God? Am I going to do God's work even when I don't feel like it? I'm going to change my schedule to do God's work. What does God ask of you? See, His heart is for the lost. His heart is that people are, are discipled to follow Him. Paul gives two things as his first two motivations. The fear of God and the love of God. You know, if we had to, to figure out how to put the two together, maybe we think of, of our relationship with our dads. And I know some had good relationship with dads, some had bad relationships with dads. But when, when I think of my relationship with dad, I knew he loved me beyond all else. And that was motivating. And I feared him if I didn't do what he said because I knew that there was just and righteous discipline. Did that fear alter my relationship with him? No, it it was part of knowing that he loved me actually. And we could go into other verses that, that God says, if I love you, I will discipline you. But that's Paul's first two motivations from God. I know I'm going to be accountable to God. I fear him. But I also know he loved me beyond all else. Point number three. When we talk about what motivated Paul, what can motivate us to be a little crazy for the gospel. Verses 16 and 17, and I'm stealing this from C.S. Lewis, just giving credit where it's due right up, up front. See people as more than mere mortals. See people as more than mere mortals. Mortals. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And where he starts is really, really key in motivating us to share the gospel and how we respond to each other in any situation From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh or in a worldly way, in in just a fleshly way. This is that this is just it. 
And, and so for Paul, that would have been, we don't just see people as what they have. We don't just see people as, as people to use, people that might be able to, to work to my advantage or that can make me happy. But we see every individual as an eternal soul. As an eternal soul. I put in your notes C.S. Lewis's quote from The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Wow. He nailed it. He nailed it. We are to regard no one according to the flesh. And so what that means is I start looking around and I start seeing people as souls that either need Christ or are going to be in heaven with me. It's one of the two. Always one of the two. And Paul mentions those two things. In six, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, and he's, he's talking about probably his view of Christ before he was converted. He thought Christ was a, a rebel, leading a rebellion, leading people away from religion, so he was killing Christians. He says, we regard him thus no longer. We're changed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jerry, you mentioned this verse earlier. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And you see in these two verses an understanding that this isn't it. People either aren't saved and aren't regarding Christ well and are going to end up in hell, or they are saved and they're new. Completely made new. Part of God's new creation. It's one or the other. And so when I look around, I need to see either people that need Christ or believers that are new creations and treat people as one or the other. Not to treat them lightly. I love what what C.S. Lewis said. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. See, this changes our perspective on people. tries to give us a godly perspective on people. I I tried this a little bit this week. As I would go, go about my day, and, and yesterday in particular, we're, we were in Starbucks. There's a Starbucks cup on the screen, I think. There's a reason that that's there. We're in Starbucks yesterday, the kids, and, and, and I, I just started looking at everybody in Starbucks. I like to people watch sometimes, and sometimes just go to a coffee shop and do that. But when you do that, start to think, okay, that person needs Christ. I wonder if they're going to heaven or hell. I wonder if they're a brother or sister in Christ or I wonder if they need Christ. And, and as I did that this week, it changed how I treated people. It, it, it changed my attitude toward people. Instead of being annoyed at someone who was taking too long in line in front of me, that person needs Christ. Instead of getting upset at the driver who almost ran me off the road, not that there's a little bit of, of issue there, that's a driver that needs Christ. And I challenge you this week to not view people as mere mortals. Wherever you're at, look around and start to train your mind to think that person is either going to heaven or hell. It changes how you treat the cashier that can barely get the things across the scanner when you have to be somewhere five minutes ago. It changes 
how we treat our families when they're annoying us because they're new creations. See, annoyances come when, when we aren't having our rights met or our wants met. Annoyances come from self. But when we start to think of people as more than mere mortals, there's really no way to be annoyed at them anymore. Rather, what happens is a sense of compassion, a sense of care. Then, if I'm viewing them as more than mere mortals, if I view them as a soul that's going to spend eternity either with Christ or away from Christ, I want to tell them about Christ then. I want to start that conversation. You've never talked to a mere mortal. And I love that second verse. You are new, completely changed. It doesn't matter what is in your past. Christ was enough to deal with it. And he can make you new. He can forgive that sin. And we are his creations. So I challenge you this week. Join me. This week. Take one week. So let's start with that. Everywhere you go, start to think of people as eternal souls and see what happens. Tell me stories. I'd love to hear some stories about uh, uh, what kind of attitude that, that generates. All of that gets us to the last point. And really, Paul, there's different kinds of arguments. And, and in this argument, Paul is leading up to the end of the passage in 18 through 21 here. And this is his his what he's been leading up to, I would argue these, these four verses are the center point of all of 2 Corinthians. And, and so these highlight, underline, if you're, if you're willing to write in your Bible, somehow set these apart. All this is from God in verse 18. And so he's summarizing that we're new creations, that we're made in him, that we've been forgiven. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul leads up to this and he comes in verse 18 to say, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he goes on to to say the same thing two more times because this is his center point. So he says it three times. And if you remember last week, we talked about reconciliation. There's always four steps to the process of reconciliation. The first step is there's an offense, right? And someone turns away from the other or both turn away from each other. And in our case, we, we have offended God with our sin. It turns us away. We have no relationship with our creator God. Second step is always something has to intervene. And in this case, we couldn't do anything, so Christ intervened, right? Remember this from last week? Christ said, even though you hate me, I love you. I'm going to die for you. And he intervened and took our place on the cross. Third step is there's always a choice then. Do we turn back to Christ? Do we accept that salvation? And if we do, the fourth step is renewed relationship. It's fellowship with Christ. We see all that here. And so Paul is saying, because 
of that. Because Christ reconciled us to himself and we have relationship with Christ, the result of that is we're to be ministers of reconciliation. We're to take that, tell everyone we can, spread it to everyone we can. And he says it again in 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's what he did on the cross. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Think about that wording for a minute. Christ is is, is passing the baton to us, entrusting to us. And so for whatever reason, God in his sovereignty said, I'm going to trust the people that had their backs turned to me, that hated me. And I'm going to trust them to share the good news. And I don't know why God would do that. Because we are jars of clay. Except then his glory shines through us. And so this idea of entrusted is that we've been given this responsibility. This is the job we've been given, that we've been hired for. We're now ministers of reconciliation. We're entrusted the message of reconciliation. This is plan A. There is no plan B. You and I are God's plan for more people to come into the kingdom. Because we're to be so amazed that Jesus reconciled us to himself. That gratitude should overflow with a message to other people. Bottom line. You and I should be on our way to hell. Praise God we aren't. Let's take as many people to heaven as we can. That's the bottom line of what Paul is saying. Verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God, And this is the third time he's saying the same thing. We're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And, and the idea for ambassadors, we have a lot of idea of, of ambassadors, and some are good, some are bad. Unfortunately, ambassadorship is sort of a light thing in our culture, right? If you gave the right political donations, you can probably earn an ambassadorship. But for them, it wasn't like that. Ambassadors were were wise men, usually elderly men, that were sent to another nation that you were in conflict with. Reconciliation is just all over the place here. It's cool. And, And so they were sent to a nation you were in conflict with to make peace, to try to to arrange the peace treaty. That's what an ambassador did. You were in a foreign land with a message of peace. Usually, it was a smaller country that was about to get wiped off the face of the earth that would send an ambassador to the greater country. And what a a reversal. What an amazing reversal that Christ and God is the one making peace with us. Even when he did nothing wrong. And so we're to be ambassadors of Christ. We're messengers, we're ambassadors An ambassador represented a nation or a king to another. It was an envoy. And think about ambassadors for a minute. Even in our setting, if we think of what ambassadors should be, we can understand it. Ambassadors always take their cues from the person they're representing, right? An ambassador to Russia or an ambassador to Kosovo or wherever from the United States, he's representing the United States. We are representing God as ambassadors in God's place in this world. Think about that. Think about the responsibility. Second thing about ambassadors, 
Ambassadors are always in a foreign land. This isn't home. Praise God. (laughs) We are here temporarily because our home is in heaven. But we are here to be ambassadors for the king and to share the message for the king. That means we don't get too attached here. That means we don't get too upset when things are falling apart here. In fact, things are going to fall apart. Otherwise, they wouldn't need ambassadors. The role was huge. It was respected. Today even, in the news, in the last couple years, we've talked a lot about the ambassador in Benghazi who lost his life because he was an ambassador in a foreign, hostile land. Are we willing to be that kind of an ambassador in a foreign, hostile land? Paul says, I implore you to be reconciled to God. God's making an appeal through us. How can we not see ourselves as ambassadors? How can we not share Christ with others? Point number four there is because God has reconciled us, Embrace the identity of an ambassador. Here's the thing. Don't just think of a duty to share the gospel. Think of an identity as a sharer of the gospel. We've talked about this with servanthood. I talk about that all the time with servanthood. You probably get sick of it. That we don't just serve, but we are servants. We don't just share the gospel. We are ambassadors. It's our purpose. It's who we are. My family loves the commercials. I, I don't know. They're not in here. It's Geico, I think. And they, they have some annoying thing happen. And it's like, oh, it's just who they are. You, know, you have the Tarzan and Jane. And couples fight about directions. It's who they are. And, and Mark came to me the other day. He's like, they should, I, I got a new one for them, Dad. It should be a little boy that just goes, rah, 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 with the same repetitive noise. And it should say, kids are annoying. It's who they are. <laughs> I'm like, Mark. Got a little bit of self-awareness there. That's pretty cool. (laughs) You're ambassadors. It's who you are. You're ministers of reconciliation. It's who you are. Not just something I'm trying to force you to do today, but to realize that's our job. It's who we are. That's our identity. And Paul wraps it up in a beautiful way in verse 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It always comes back to the gospel for Paul. And it should for us too. It always comes back to the gospel. And and he's sandwiching here, 18, he talks about Christ giving himself for us in 21. He sandwiches those concepts around the the action he wants us to do as ambassadors in the middle. But, But just look at the beauty of this verse. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. A couple bits of theology there. Jesus was sinless. He knew no sin because he was fully God and fully man. He was made to be sin for us. And there's all kinds of debate about what that is because we can't understand that. How could God become sin for us? And some have said, well, he became a sinner. But we know that's not true because God doesn't sin. Others have said, well, it's just about his sacrifice and really not much more. That's too light. The idea here is that he took on himself the penalty for our sin, the burden of our sin. One author I thought described it well, Harris, it says, it seems like Paul's intent to say more than that Christ 
is that to say more than that Christ was made a sin offering and yet less that he became a sinner. So complete was the identification of the sinless Christ with the sin of the sinner, including its dire guilt and its dread consequences of separation from God, that Paul could say profoundly, God made him to be sin for us. And so the idea is he took our sin on himself. He took the penalty for our sin. And at the moment where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a moment I can never understand the side of eternity where God took our penalty of our sin on himself and felt the separation that that brings. And he died and paid for it and rose again and conquered it so we could be righteous. And that's the last part of that verse. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to understand that, some authors have called it a blessed exchange or a sweet exchange. I love that idea. Because the idea is that we're exchanging our sin for his righteousness. It would be like if John and I were wearing coats and I had a dirty, greasy, torn up coat and you had a really nice sport coat. And I said, you know what, I'd like to trade. And you were willing to trade with me. That's what Jesus did. He said, I'll take your coat of your sin. I'll bear that. Here, you take the coat of my righteousness and I'm going to infuse that on you. And when God looks at you, he's going to see my coat of righteousness. It's a blessed exchange that changes everything and makes us new. Embrace the identity of an ambassador. That means it's our job. It's our priority that means we, we take it seriously. We pray for people that need Christ, maybe even by name and daily. We think through strategies. Ambassadors think through, how am I going to be an ambassador? Think through ways, plan things. I, I was um, at someone's house a, a few months ago, and they had just planned a thing of making uh, some gingerbread houses in their garage, and they invited all the neighborhood kids and the pastor. <laughs> it was awesome and talked with neighbors, and they were trying to be intentional of being an ambassador with the Ministry of Reconciliation. There's a lot of ways we can spend our time. Let's spend it as ambassadors. Let's find ways to share the gospel. I'd like to end with a story that I read about a youth pastor. He said he'd just entered a convenience store with one of his students, Jeff, to pay for gas to put in the church van. They're on a youth activity. And, and he looked, and the woman behind the counter had obviously been crying. And he looked at her, and he said, Has anybody told you that Jesus really loves you? The student freaked out. Walked out, dove back in the van, just embarrassed. The youth pastor talked to the woman for the next few minutes. She asked Christ to come into her heart. Gets back in the van, and the student said, Don't ever do that again. Don't do what? The pastor asked. Witness to people like that. Did you see how embarrassed that lady got? (laughs) Pastor responded, you got more embarrassed than she did. I prayed with her. She received Christ. Pastor took the student back in the store, talked to the woman who now just was, was beaming with the love of God. Who's embarrassed? Them or us? Am I going to serve self? I'm going to serve God. Let's be ambassadors for the king. 
We praise you for reconciling us to, to yourself and making us ambassadors, giving us a job, hiring us. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, help us to find ways to share you with others, to be looking around for people that need you, for oozing, help us to ooze out who you are and how much you've loved us to others that we just can't help it. Lord, I pray for revival here. I pray for those that know people that don't know you that this week you'd give them the courage to say something in a, in a loving, winsome way, but help us to not be quiet about our faith, to not just keep it inside when it is the thing that will save lives of people around us. Lord, I look forward to seeing the results of that. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, no mere mortals. Try it. Everywhere you look, every person you look at, realize that's a soul that's going to heaven or hell. Tell me next week what what happened this week, what kinds of attitudes that changed.